Morning, Gateway. If we can start making our way to our seats, that would be great. It's great to see everybody this morning. Welcome, welcome. It's great to have you here at Gateway Baptist Church this morning. I want to give a welcome to all of you and to those watching us online or in the gym. We're so happy you're all able to be with us this morning to worship the Lord and just to be together as family. Just a couple announcements from me, and then I'm going to ask our Pastor Grady to come up. He has a library up here that he's going to share with us. But uh, no, two really important announcements. One was mentioned last week, so I'm just following up on that. Uh, we have an opportunity to bless our college students at AUM through the Baptist Campus Ministry there. Uh, they have a big Thanksgiving meal that they do this Wednesday to bless a lot of the students uh, before they go home and just share the gospel and be together. And so we have, for the past few years, have helped provide desserts. So I've had two families come forward since last week. We need a few more, please. Um, so if you can want to be a part of that, they love home cook the home desserts, like something that's special. Mingus is shaking his head, they know. Um, I'm going to pray for him in a little bit. He's a Baptist Campus Ministry president over there at the BCM. So they love getting the homegrown stuff that you may have been raised with, a special pie, dessert, you know, cookies, whatever. So please come see me or call the office. Um, they need to be in by at the very latest, 9.30 or 10 on Wednesday, this Wednesday. But if you could drop them off on Tuesday, that would be better, and we'll leave them in the kitchen, and then I'll take them over on Wednesday. So please be a part of bringing in some desserts. Um, another thing that just we were made aware of uh, past week and a half or so, that we just want to provide other opportunities for us to bless individuals during this Christmas season. Um, for many months and years, we've been praying for Foch Smart. Foch, raise your little hand there, buddy. Foch has blessed and has worked with the ministry called called Safety Net Youth Care for many years, and we pray for him often from this pulpit of him ministering to those there I'm going to mention, as well as Ty Carmichael. Ty, can you raise your hand right there? Ty's in the process of becoming a member here. He's been coming to church here for about a year. He and his father have worked with Safety Net as well. And so just very briefly, I know things are in the season. We have a lot of things going on with the Christmas boxes and desserts and all these other things, but we just feel led that God gives us opportunities to show the love and hands and feet of Christ, and we want to see um, if you want to participate in this. So Safety Net Youth Care um, helps teenagers who have broken the law, who are in some trouble at times, and the courts partner with Safety Net to help these kids get on the right path so they won't be sent to juvie. So they're a hand and extension of mercy and love to help them get on their feet. Many, many of them, and you could probably talk to folks, come from very difficult home environments. So they are put in an intensive residential program. So we have an opportunity, like I said, to show the love of Jesus to these uh, young teenagers. And what they do is they have an adopt a teen uh, ministry program they do during the holidays. And so uh, these young men and women fill out a form like this. It's kind of like a Christmas wish list because many of them will not be able to go home for Christmas. And so uh, right now there's about 40 kids that are available from what Ty said. Around 17 have been chosen already. I'm making my way to a text I want to read really quick to give some perspective. And uh, so after they fill out this list, um, you as an individual... Um, or a family, and what I'm going to encourage is maybe a group would get this list and then go shopping and literally shop for this teen. Um, they average between $150 and $200, and I know you may go, oh, okay, that's a little bit much for our family and what we're going through, but what I want to encourage you with and what we're going to do as a youth group is you can partner together as groups, Sunday school class, life group, youth group, Bible studies, families you may know come together and each give a little bit, and you could easily reach this mark to be able maybe all of the groups adopt one, one teenager. 
So we're going to do that as a youth group. Um, but this is from Ty's father, Todd. He said, the majority of the children of Safety Net will not get a chance to head home at Christmas for many reasons. And so we must find ways to remind them that they are loved and cherished. He said, in my five years working with these kids, each year the most common question that all these teenagers ask him is, Coach, why would anyone want to purchase Christmas gifts for me that don't even know me? He said, this has opened so many doors for me to show the love of Christ and that we can bring Christmas gifts to them each year and share the gospel. So, guys, it's just one opportunity. Come talk to me. We'll give you some other information. There's some details. Um, need to know something within this week because these Christmas lists will be given out during the week of Thanksgiving. They will be emailed or sent out. And then you have uh, two to three weeks to get the gifts here, and we'll meet up with Ty to get them over. So just pray about it. We just love providing opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work in and through us to show the love of Christ. So, Pastor. You can bring them in today. I want to encourage you, do not walk down the hall. Walk down the hall before you leave today, friends. There's over 100 boxes from the people of Gateway already this morning. I'm thrilled with the response of you guys to bless the nations by giving toys to these kids so the gospel can go forth. And so if you've not done a box yet, there's still time. If you have one at home, like I forgot to bring it, see me, see Audrey, talk to a staff member. We'll make arrangements to get it from you later today, tonight, or first thing in the morning so you can be part of that. Also, we have an opportunity to serve. I mentioned this last week, but we need some people with IT skills to help us on our tech team. This is, if you look behind you back there, you see Brad up in the sound booth running pro presenter. What's on the screen? You see Chris McCorkle and Brian McCurdy's around the corner there running our live stream for us. These guys are up there a lot, and we need some help to give them some relief. So on occasion, they can sit down with their family and worship with their family on Sunday mornings. And so if you would like to learn how to run pro presenter, the screens, if you'd like to learn how to help learn live, run live stream, we have some opportunities for that. Please see me. Please see Justin, and we'd love to talk to you about that. Last thing this morning I want to mention is some new resources for you. If you're not aware, we have a, a kind of a book stall in the hallway outside the office where we have books available at cost where you can just grow in your walk with Christ. We have several new additions there I want to call your attention to. One is, and these are on the top middle shelf, one is from Ed Welch. It's called A Small Book for an Anxious Heart. These are like two-page like devotionals every day on how to deal biblically with anxiety. How do you put off anxious thoughts and put on trust in the Lord? This is a phenomenal book if you deal with any type of worry or anxiety in your life. This is an easily accessible read to help turn your mind to Christ and to Scripture. That's up there as well. There's a new book for ladies from Noelle Piper, John Piper's wife, and it's called Faithful Women and Their Extraordinary God. If you want to be encouraged in your walk with Christ, ladies, this is a great resource. And one more that may be very fitting in this time of year in November, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics? So... <laughs> And this may be applicable to family Thanksgiving gatherings coming up, to friends you have within Gateway, but how do we love people who profess the name of Christ, we know are followers of Christ, but they think differently about politics than we do? This is, as you can see, a short book. This is an after-dinner read one night, very quick. This is from Nine Marks Ministry, a very faithful ministry out of Washington, D.C., and Mark Dever. And this is just a great little resource for you on how do we love other believers who just think differently on the political front than we do. Those are all available in the Resource Center in the top shelf. But one more, and I'm super excited about this one, because this one is available to every single one of you today free. Seriously. We have about 200 of these for free. This is a book from Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. This book is a phenomenal read in terms of just helping encourage you in your walk with Christ. When you sin and struggle with sin, how do we run back to Christ? When life is hard, like we're talking about in James, what is our hope in that? 
This is published by Crossway. They're the publishers of the English Standard Version that I read out of and I study out of that we use a lot around Gateway. It's a fantastic ministry, and the Crossway publishers actually emailed us directly and said, hey, we've had a wealthy donor in the country. We want to get this book in the hands of more Christians. If your church can give these out to members, we'll provide you some cases of this book for free. We'll even pay for the shipping. I wrote back and went, seriously? You're going to send me two cases of free books to give to people? It's like Christmas morning for me. So at no cost to Gateway, we have two cases of these books available for you to take as a family and read. I know during the holidays, your work may slow down some. You have time over Thanksgiving week with some days off, or you have some time during Christmas. This would be a great read for you. They are a big stack on the back table in the back or next to where Audrey is standing back there and sitting there at the seat. There's, she's holding it up back there. Um, <clears throat> Alex Hood is in the gym, I think, and so Alex is going to hold it up for you in the gym as well. We have it on table in the back, and so we have plenty of these. So I just encourage you, before you leave today, not only check out the Resource Center, but again, this one's free. Come get this one out of the back and be blessed this, this holiday season, reading more about Christ's heart for you and his love for you. Now, as we prepare our hearts to worship the Lord, can I ask you to stand, please? I want to read some scripture for us as we turn our minds to the Lord. And before I read, friends, our first psalm this morning, we're going to sing, Give Me Jesus. This is a song I want us to really make our prayer to the Lord this morning, because we're going to sing, Take the world, but give me Jesus. Take this world, my God is enough. And I prayer, my prayer for myself and for us is that we don't just say those words, but that really become our prayer, our desire, that God give us grace to think that way. As we think about singing that psalm this morning, I want to read to us what we saw when we studied the psalms from Psalm 73, because Asaph articulated this in the scripture, the very type thing we're singing this morning. Listen to what Asaph says from Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You, God, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Notice this, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength in my heart and my portion forever. Let's sing, friends, about God being our strength, our heart, and our portion forever this morning. Take this world by God. 
going to read this verse before we sing the next song. In John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And just that promise of that assurance we have in Christ as we sing that song that if we are in Christ and he has saved us, that there's no one that can snatch us out of his hand. We are sealed to the day of redemption. And as we get ready to sing this next song that he will hold us fast as we feel our strength our hope and our endurance is found in Christ and Christ alone. When I feel my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would
we thank you so much for the truth that we just sang, that you hold us, you sustain us, you are our rock and our fortress. In these times where things seem uncertain or chaotic, with such a lack of peace, God, you are faithful, you are good, you are just, you're unchanging. That's why I just love the fact that you are the rock we can fall on to hold us up, to sustain us. You've given us your Holy Spirit as a pledge to seal that. We thank you for those truths this morning, God, that we can rely on you, our one true hope. And Lord, that's why I love each week as we come and offer these prayers up to you, God. We know that you're a God who hears, that we can entrust these individuals, these situations to you, knowing that you're faithful and good and you would act at your discretion for your honor and glory. And Lord, this morning, we want to lift up our Gateway College students. I know some are in different campuses around the city and the state, but Lord, specifically this morning, we want to lift up the ones at AUM. God, we thank you for uh, the students that we have that attend here that are at that campus. We thank you, Lord, for Mingus. As we said earlier, his, his role as the BCM president and his leadership there and giving oversight to the guys that live in the building and just all that that entails, trying to reach the campus with the gospel. We lift up Ben Crocker and the interim campus minister, Lord. Continue to give him wisdom and insight and direction and guidance uh, for what they need to do to reach the students on that campus with your gospel, Lord. Uh, protect them, watch over and provide the resources they need. And God, even during the season with Thanksgiving come up and finals and Christmas, God, we just pray for an extra measure of grace upon each one of those leaders there at the BCM, the students, the, those involved with the Bible studies. God, that your word will go forth, that um, the gospel would be challenged, that we would see salvation come to that campus, Lord, just a revival break out through the work of those students um, and taking the gospel to those kids on the campus. Lord, we thank you so much for them. And Lord, we also lift up this morning our school boards of the MPS and Pike Road. God, we just pray your wisdom and guidance and direction for the members on each of those boards, for the superintendents, Dr. Moore and Dr. Ledbetter. God, they need your wisdom so much in this time of having to make tough decisions for their kids, for the students, the teachers, all that's involved, for the education of those in our community. And God, we just pray you would show up in a mighty way and give them guidance and direction, especially coming up to begin a new year after the holidays and all those decisions that have to be made. Lord, we thank you. We have an opportunity to pray for our extended family here in Montgomery. And Lord, this morning we lift up Ridgecrest Baptist Church as they're meeting this morning right up the road here on Vaughn. We thank you for Pastor Gary Blair and for those that they're reaching in their community there. We pray for your uh, protection. We pray for resources. We pray, God, you would guide and direct their steps as they strategize on how to reach their community. But we specifically lift up Pastor Tom there and their ministry in Awana to the Hispanic and the Mistec community there that they reach out to these kids weekly to bring the gospel and discipleship. And we pray you continue to sustain them, Lord. And God, as we look to the nations, we uh, want to lift up this morning our Southern Baptist IMB missionaries that are all over this planet. God, as of October 31st, there was 3,535 field personnel all over the world taking your gospel to the unreached. And Lord, we just lift them up now with that number, God. You know if it's increased by now, but we pray your protection over them. We pray wisdom, guidance, provision, God, that as your gospel goes forth all over this world, Lord, the people would come to saving faith. Your spirit of conviction would fall. Your spirit of transformation and repentance would come to those lives that these individuals are reaching all over the world. 
We thank you for their heart of sacrifice that you've called them to the nations and that we can have the privilege to lift them up in prayer and ask for you to work on their behalf. And Lord, we thank you that we get to pray for these unreached people groups by name and lift them up to you, these individuals that you've created, uh, that you delight in, that you desire to draw to yourself. So we lift up the Sharwa of Cameroon. Uh, these individuals practice Islam and they live in two small villages near the Nigerian border. So, Lord, we just pray as we do each week that you would bring the native Christians of Cameroon. We know there's some there. And those that border Nigeria, possibly some of the Nigerians would reach and strategize these two small villages. And, God, that you would provide biblical resources in their, the language of Fula, which in that part of Africa many, many speak. So we just pray, God, you would move in such a way to bring conviction to the tribal leaders. And, the, and however you desire to do it, God, that your gospel would reach the Sharwa people and to see them come to saving faith. And Lord, we thank you that you're a good God. You're a God who provides. We thank you for the provision you've given to us. We thank you for the giving that's been done today and online. We ask you to bless it, Lord. These are your resources to be used for your kingdom work here at Gateway. We are such a blessed people, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. And for our pastor, Lord, we thank you so much for Grady. We ask you to bless him this morning. Just give him energy and insight and wisdom and discernment, Lord, as he brings your word to us today. Uh, we just pray for health and strength that he comes forward. And we thank you so much for his heart to teach, to shepherd us, to love us, to bring your word to us each week. And again, as we said, Lord, thank you for holding us fast. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. You are our blessed assurance in times of uncertainty. And we look to you as the good God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again, Gateway family. I want you to find James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5. While you're looking at that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a hard day at work? And if so, what happens to your speech when you get home? Have you ever been hurting or sick? If so, what happens to your speech when you're around your friends and your co-workers and your family? Have you ever been falsely accused? If so, how did you treat your kids when you got home that night from work? Friends, when life is hard, what happens to our speech towards others? Have you ever lashed out at someone who hasn't even wronged you just because you've been having a hard day? Has your roommate, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, even the people who follow you on Facebook ever had to take the brunt of your speech because of a hardship that you were dealing with that they were not even responsible for? And friends, I fear that we all have done that at different times in our life, where we've lashed out at other people because we were facing a hardship, because we were struggling. You see, James knows that tendency of ours, and so as we find ourselves in the middle of several weeks of looking at this section on suffering in James chapter 5, it's no surprise that he's going to turn to the topic of our speech again. And by our speech, I don't just mean the words we say, but that includes the words we write, and yes, that includes the words that we post online on our social media feeds as well. Now, if you've been with us a while through our study of James these last 38 or so weeks, you may be thinking, haven't we talked about speech a lot? And yes, we have. Speech is an ongoing, consistent theme of James's letter. He brings it up over and over again throughout the letter. Now, why is James so focused on our words all throughout this letter? Well, I want to remind you what he's already said. If you look back one page to James chapter 3, verse 5, this is why James is so obsessed with their speech and all these different topics that he brings up. James chapter 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So why is James so obsessed with our speech? Because he knows the great potential our speech has. The great potential to bless people, the great potential to build up people, the great potential to help and serve other people. But he also knows the great potential our speech has to curse people, to destroy people, to criticize and to tear down. And friends, as we come to this section on suffering still, we need to be reminded those temptations to sinful speech, those temptations to speech that hurts are intensified when we're hurting. When we are walking through hardships, when we are walking through, walking through trials and walking through sufferings, those temptations to speech that is dangerous seem to be so intensified. So it's very fitting, as James talks about suffering still, to bring up the topic of our tongues, our speech, once again. So this morning we're looking at just one verse this morning, James chapter 5, verse 9. As we, look for, as we read it, I want you to be looking for what is the tendency in our speech when we're suffering? What is our tendency as people when we're suffering? What is our tendency with our words and then how do we not let that happen? So let's look at James chapter 5, verse 9. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and our words will also be on the screen for you. James chapter 5, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word tackles all the real issues of our life and shows us what your will is for us. Lord, as we continue in the section on suffering this morning, and particularly what happens to our speech, we ask for much grace, Lord, to your, for your word to transform us, your word to change us. God, we want to be a people who are conformed to the image of Christ. So we ask that you use your word this morning to do that very thing in each of our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's what I want you to see this morning from James chapter 5, verse 9, simply this idea. As we endure hardships, we must be patient with one another. As we endure hardships, as we endure trials and sufferings and the hardships and pain of life, we have a choice to make. And we have to choose in how we speak to one another. And we need to choose to speak in patient ways, not in sinful ways. James is continuing his theme of walking in faith and what it looks like to live out our faith in very practical ways. And so, for instance, as we endure hardships that will come, he's showing us that, we, that walking in faith means we act with patience, we speak with patience with one another. So let's kind of unpack that this morning. First of all, at the outset, just the reminder of what we saw last week, and that's that phrase that we will endure hardships. We looked at several passages last Sunday morning where it's not an if you endure hardships, it's a when you endure hardships. Jesus told us about when you endure hardships. James tells us about when you endure hardships. We live in a broken and a fallen world, and hardships are a normal part of all of our lives. But friends, as we endure hardships, something really important happens. Those trials, those hardships, those sufferings, they show what's really inside of us. You know, when times are easy and times are good, it is so easy for us to convince ourselves we're pretty good people. Oh yeah, I love God, and I love others, and I'm pretty generous, and I'm pretty patient. And we can easily convince ourselves that we're pretty good people in the good times. But friends, when the trials come, it really reveals what's on the inside of us. It shows what we are really like. I heard someone describe it once as the trials squeeze us. If you squeeze something, what's on the inside comes out. So if you go home and you take an orange and you squeeze an orange, you shouldn't be surprised if orange juice comes out. 
Now, it'd be foolish if you squeeze an orange, and you go, wait, 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 this is normally an apple, and normally apple juice is in here, but I don't know why orange juice came out. No one would ever believe you. That'd be foolish, because if you squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out. The squeezing doesn't change what's inside of it. The squeezing doesn't make something in there. The squeezing just reveals what's on the inside already. Friends, when we are walking through trials, hardships, sufferings, the pain of life, we're being squeezed, and what comes out of our mouth is what's already in there. I think we try to explain it away so often, but what we're seeing in our speech when we get squeezed by the hardships of life is what was already within us. And what is it that's already within us that comes out so much in the trials? Well, James tells us in one word here in verse 9, he says, do not grumble. Do not grumble. Well, this word grumble in the Greek can mean to moan. It can mean to sigh. It can mean to grumble. It can also mean to complain. And perhaps complain is the for us is the most accurate translation to understand what it means. Anytime you see this word grumble or complain in the scriptures, it always is referring to a response to a painful circumstance. It's always referring to hardships in life and how we respond with complaints or with groaning. And James knows when our lives are hard, our tendency is to complain. Our tendency is to grumble about things. But notice something here. Our grumbling has an object. We're not just grumbling generally. We're not just complaining generally. We're, we're complaining at something in particular. Notice this phrase, do not grumble against one another. That when life is hard, we have a tendency to complain, not just generally, but to complain at other people, to direct it at other people. This word against indicates that it's confrontational, that we've become aggressive and we have become angry. Isn't that what we see so often? We've had a hard day at work. We've had some type of accusation against us. We're struggling in some way. And what do we do? We become angry in our speech to our kids, our spouse, our coworkers, our friends, not even the people who've wronged us. We become grumblers. We become complainers directed at other people, not even the situation that is hard for us. Because I want to remind us of what we saw when we studied Ephesians, that anger is not just a feeling inside of us. Anger is not some feeling we have to vent. Anger is a choice we make to a situation we don't like. And when we're suffering, friends, and we're in hardships, we don't like that situation. We're in. None of us enjoys hardships. None of us enjoys trials and sufferings. And so we don't like that situation. But we have a choice to make. And if we choose to lash out with our words, we are making a choice to be angry in those, in those situations, to take out our anger, our frustrations on other people. And James is really concerned because notice who this anger is directed at. Go back to verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. These are terms he uses to describe the body of Christ, to describe fellow Christians, the people that were called to live in closest community live, the people we're called to love and to lay down our lives in service for. And he's saying, do you notice what you're doing? Your life is hard. Yes, you're dealing with oppression and suffering and hardships, but instead of loving the people you're in community with, you're now lashing out at the people in community with, even though they've not wronged you in the situation that you are in. Because we have a tendency to take out our disappointments and our pain at life on the people that we should love and be the closest to. Now, what's so bad about that? Because, friends, the reality is I don't think we often see our criticism and our complaining and our grumbling as bad as it really is. I don't think we see our criticism and complaining and grumbling quite the way God does. Because if you look at our speech, we try to justify it, don't we? We've had a moment where we've lashed out at our kids or our roommate or our spouse or our friends because we've had a hard day, and they confront us in love on that, like, hey, you're taking out your anger you know, on us. What do we typically do? Do we typically fall on our face and repent? Yeah, we typically are like, well, I've just had a hard day at work today. And we start trying to find ways to justify our sinful response. Well, if you just knew what that person had said to me, you know why I have to respond the way I do or why I'm feeling what I do. 
Or we even then turn and blame them. Well, you just ruined my day by all these things. And we're so quick to try to justify our grumbling, our complaining, our aggression towards other people instead of owning our sin and repenting of it. Because we even replace biblical terms like anger and grumbling and complaining with terms that don't sound as bad. I'm just a little bit frustrated today. Well, I just, I have a short fuse today. I'm just, I'm on edge today. And we take all these terms that don't quite sound as bad because we're trying to justify in our hearts how we're really lashing out in sinful anger at other people because we're hurting in some way. Yet, friends, it's a serious sin to do this. It's serious enough for James to pause in the middle of suffering, a section of suffering, to reinterject this warning about our tongues. One thing that kind of helped me grasp the, the seriousness of this are two different definitions I came across in authors I was reading this week, and these just really helped me, because sometimes we have words like criticism or anger or grumbling, and we hear them so much, we really lose the, the bad amazement, I guess, of, of what these words really mean. I want to give you two different definitions of grumbling or complaining that I think are very accurate to what James is saying here. Number one, to grumble is to leak darkness when we were made to shine. To grumble is to leak darkness when we were made to shine. That just gave me pause when I heard that because if we're coming home from work frustrated, if someone's wronged us and we take it out on our friends or our co-workers, what we're doing is we've been called to be light to them. We've been called to be a light in our homes. We've been called to be a light in our workplace. We've been called to be a light to those who are around. And instead of being a light and doing what God has called us to do, because we're suffering in some way, because we're in some hardship, instead we lash out at other people and we bring darkness instead of light. Because our grumbling, our criticism, our aggression towards other people tears down, it breaks down things. Hence it brings evil, it brings destruction, it brings darkness. To grumble is to leak darkness when we are made to shine. There's a second definition I saw this week that really kind of rested my attention that grumblers are victimizers of the body of Christ. Grumblers are victimizers of the body of Christ. To victimize someone means you wrong them, you hurt them. And when we grumble or complain or lash out at fellow believers, we are victimizing the body of Christ. We are taking out our sinful expression to people that we are called to be closest to and to love and to build up. So you put those together. To grumble is to leak darkness when we are made to shine. And when we do that, we are victimizing the body of Christ. In light of the seriousness of that sin, it's no wonder that James gives us this command, this imperative here in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Well, that raises the question for us. How do we stop? We all struggle with it in different ways at different times. How do we not hurt other people when we ourselves are suffering and in hardships? And to answer that question, friends, we need to understand where our grumbling comes from. Why is it that our tendency is when life is hard that we take it out on other people in our speech? So where does it come from? Well, we've seen it before, but it's an important verse for us. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus tells us where all of our sinful speech, including our grumbling and complaining and aggression and anger, come from. It says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Here we go. For out of the abundance of what? The heart, the mouth speaks. Where does our grumbling come from? It comes from our hearts, our soul, our inner person. Friends, it goes back to that idea of the orange. When we are squeezed, what's on the inside comes out. And so when we're having a hard day at work, when we're in some type of suffering or trial or hardship, if what comes out is grumbling and complaining, we can't blame it on the people around us. We can't blame it on our circumstances. It's coming out because our heart was already full of that type of grumbling and complaining. Now that raises a deeper question. What is it in our hearts that leads to this grumbling? What is it in our hearts that's, that's fueling this complaint and this grumbling that comes out when the times of stress that we're in. And thankfully, James has already told us, look back about one page of your Bible to James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. 
And James tells us what's happening in our hearts that fuels, that, that feeds, if you will, this grumbling, these complaints that hurt other people. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This is dealing with your heart. Now, verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. He's saying if we're fighting and quarreling with our words, it's because we're coveting. What's happening in our hearts is we're coveting. If you want to say it a different way, the root issue in our hearts that leads to us grumbling in times of stress is the sin of discontentment. The root issue in our hearts out of which this grumbling and complaining comes out when we're squeezed is the sin of discontentment. We don't like the way our lives are going. Therefore, we covet it. We want something different. We, want, we covet. We long for a life that's free of pain. We want a life that's free of accusations and sickness and oppression and financial hardships and broken relationships. We go on and on. We want that life that's the easy life to get from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. We covet that. We long for that. And when we don't have that, because of a hardship, an oppression, a trial we're walking through, what do we do? Back to James 4.2 here. We, we, we covet and cannot attain, so therefore we fight and we quarrel with one another. We need to take even one further step back, though. If our, if our words that are hurting other people that come out in times of stress and trials is coming, out from, is coming from our hearts, and it's coming from our hearts because our hearts are discontent, what is it that's fueling the discontent of our hearts? And there's two root sins, I believe, that fuel the discontent of our hearts. Number one, we don't trust God. If we are dealing, if we see that speech coming out of our mouth that's hurting other people, we have to go deeper than just our speech. We have to go to our hearts. And we go to our hearts and we see discontent. We have to go deeper than the discontent. And what's fueling the discontent? Number one is the sin of not trusting in God. If we're discontent, friends, we're really not believing that God is on his throne. We're really not believing that God is sovereign. We're really not believing the promise of Romans 8 that all things work together for good. We're really not believing the assurance of James 1 that God uses the trials to mature us and to make us more like Christ. We're really not believing that God is right here with us now. We're really not believing that this life is not our home. We're really not believing that something so much better awaits us. We're not trusting in God. There's a second sin that leads to discontent, and it's very similar. That's our pride, our selfishness. Because in our hearts, we are believing that the universe should revolve around us. We are believing that we are entitled to an easy, affluent life. We are believing that our desires, our plans, our dreams are paramount. We are believing that we are most important. When we put those two things together, a lack of trust in God and our pride, we have the food, if you will, the soil in which discontent grows. And when discontent grows, it is already there in our heart. And so when we get squeezed, when life is hard, what comes out? Complaints, aggressive comments towards other people because we're coveting a life that we do not have. The discontent fuels covetousness, which results in fights and quarrels or grumbling in this, or in this verse here. Friends, that grumbling is a very serious sin to God. He will not tolerate us grumbling because he will not tolerate us breaking the unity of the church he loves. He will not tolerate us destroying people made in his image. He will not tolerate us coveting what we do not have. And so look at what it says in verse 9 here back in James 5. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So that you may not be judged. Can we see this word judged here, friends? This is not judgment for salvation. Remember, he's writing to believers. We're already forgiven. The blood of Christ has already covered us for all of our sins. We do not have to fear the wrath of God. But this judgment here is the judging, the accounting that every believer will give before God one day. 
This is not the judgment for salvation. This is the accounting we will give for how we have lived our lives. What James is doing, the same thing he did in the verse before. He's trying to turn our minds to eternity. He's trying to cause us to not just think about the here and now where it's so easy to grumble. He's trying to get our minds to eternity and to think about the day when we see Christ face to face. When we see Jesus in all of his glory, when we see him in all of his holiness, and when we see face to face the one who never grumbled, never complained, though he endured suffering and hardships far beyond anything we will ever imagine, he never once lashed out at anyone else because of the pain he was experiencing. When we see him face to face, that is what James is trying to get our mind on, because when we see him face to face, we will give an accounting of our lives, including our speech. And James tries to remind us that this accounting could come any time. None of us are promised tomorrow. We could die and see Jesus tonight. We also, he could return today. We do not know when his return will be. So James tries to remind us of the immediacy, potential immediacy of us seeing Christ and having to give an account for our lives and our speech. So look back at verse 9 again. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now notice this. Behold, we need to focus in on this. The judge is standing at the door. The judge is Christ, and it says he's standing at the door. There's a picture of him being ready to enter, literally for this to come soon. So what James is trying to do, because he knows our sinful fleshly tendencies, that when life is hard and we're struggling and we're hurting, and our tendency is to lash out at other people, what he's supposed to do is stop, pause, turn your mind to Christ. See Christ as the holy judge, the one who has never complained, never grumbled, never lashed out, and see him there ready to open the door and call you by name to give an account of what you're doing. But friends, he's trying to remind us of something else as well, I believe. Because our accounting before God is not just an accounting of the sins we did. It's an accounting of whether or not we did the good things that he's called us to do. It's an accounting of what we were supposed to put off but did not put off. But it's also an accounting of the things we were to put on but we did not put on. So if we want to overcome grumbling, how do we do that? Well, we think about eternity here. We think about Christ, but then we replace it with something else. We've seen over and over in our study of Ephesians and here in James that if we want to walk in holiness, if we want to have victory, it's not enough to stop the sin. We have to replace the sin with the Christ-like virtue instead. So what should we replace grumbling with in our life? If you want one word, we replace it with patient speech. I guess that's two words technically. But we replace it with patient speech. As we endure hardships, we are to be patient with one another. Now back up one verse to verse 8, what we looked at last week. And notice how verses 8 and 9 flow together here. You also, notice this word, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Notice how he ties this together. Our, our lives will be a life of patience, waiting on Christ's return, but that patience of waiting on Christ's return as we think about patiently waiting on him should come out in patience towards one another. The vertical patience of longing for Christ's return should ex be expressed horizontally in patience with one another. Now, to remind you of last week, how do we define patience? We said part of it is just the absence of anger. But even more than that, patience is active waiting. Patience is doing the good that we can do while we wait on the things outside of our control. If we're going to be patient, it's not just we're not angry. If we're patient, we are doing the good things we can do while we wait on the things that we cannot control. And so holiness here is not just, I'm not going to lash out at others because I'm having a hard day. Holiness is, I am going to choose to use my words for the good of those around me, even if I'm having a hard day. Now, what does that look like? What, what type of words do we put on? Do we replace that lashing out with? Well, there could be a lot, couldn't there? We could do probably a 12-part sermon series on what words we put on in times of hardship. But it could be things from encouraging one another, words that build up. 
Words that confront sin and humility and love. Words of calling people to repent. Words that share Christ with those who don't know him. Words that disciple believers. Words that bring unity to people. I want to focus on just one this morning because I think it's very applicable to this concept, this concept here of what we need to be doing with our words. And I think it's something we often miss. Once you see on the screen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, and look at what our words are to be like. Paul says to people in Thessalonica, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That our tendency when we're struggling with whatever the hardship or trial or suffering is, our tendency is to lash out at other people. But instead, Paul says, instead of lashing out and tearing down, you need to encourage one another with your words. You're to encourage, you're to build up. But notice there's one thing in particular that's going to most encourage people in hardships. I want us to go back, reverse two verses to verse 16 and 17. I want you to see what the encouragement is. Look at what Paul says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then that's what Lee said, therefore encourage one another with these words. Friends, what are we to do with our words instead of grumbling and complaining when life is hard? We're to use our words to remind people of Christ's coming. We're to use our words to remind people of eternity. Yeah, friends, that seems so rare. Let me ask you, when was the last time you were hurting and struggling and someone came to you and there wasn't just the, hey, it's going to be okay, you're going to get through this, but it was, don't forget, Christ is coming back. When was the last time, friends, that you were wrong and someone put their arm around your shoulder and said to you, remember, God was returning and he will make all wrongs right one day, that all the wrongs will be made right? When was the last time that we're struggling and people pointed our mind to eternity, to heaven? When was the last time we encouraged people to that? It seems so much more common for us just to say, hey, I'm here for you. You're going to be okay. You're going to get through this. We'll get through it together. But the pattern of Scripture is to turn our minds to eternity and to use our words to focus one another on what's still to come. So, friends, as we endure hardships, we are to be patient with one another. That means we put off taking out, we put off taking out our frustrations on others. We put off getting angry. We put off grumbling. We put off complaining. We put off that type of aggressive speech towards other people. And we put on active waiting. We put on trusting in the goodness of God. We put on doing good words with our speech. And we put on, in particular, reminding one another of eternity. I love you to raise this one last question for the morning. How is that possible? How can we really, really live like that? Because friends, when I'm hurting, when I'm encountering brokenness, when I feel like I've been wronged, my default is not what I just described. My default is self-preservation, right? Self-justification, self-defense. Our default is to get angry, to get frustrated, to have sharp words back, to get critical back. How in the world do we live a life where when we're wronged, we're still trying to do good with our words. When we're hurting, we're still trying to build up. When we're suffering, we're still trying to point people to eternity. Because friends, you nor I can manufacture that. You nor I can get up this morning and say, though this day is a hard day, I'm going to be joyful and I'm going to point people to Jesus' return and I'm going to do good things today. We can't manufacture this type of emotion. We can't manufacture a heart attitude that actively waits in hardships. We cannot manufacture speech that builds up others when we are down. We cannot manufacture pointing people to eternity when life is hard. But the good news is that I can't manufacture this. You can't manufacture this. God can. And God can produce something so countercultural in our lives. He can produce this in us. As the Holy Spirit fills us and creates the fruit of patience, as the Word of God convicts us in texts like this of what we've done with our speeches, other believers challenge us in love. God can create within us this which we can never make. 
a heart that actively waits, that rejoices even on the hard days, and that uses our speech to build up instead of tearing down. So as I want to ask you this morning, is God's grace changing your speech? What happens on those hard days that you've been wronged or you're suffering or enduring some, some difficulty? What happens to your speech? Does your speech reflect a life that is self-focused, that is full of the flesh? Or does your speech re- reveal a life that is transformed by the grace of God, that is so counterintuitive, so countercultural, that you can only explain it by God's grace that is so real? Because if we realize we're falling short in our speech, we need to be praying and asking God to produce this in us. We need to be praying every morning, Holy Spirit, fill me. I can't produce this type of patient speech, but you can. We need to be in the Word, memorizing and meditating on text like this. We need to be getting into each other's life to help one another do this. But friends, the good news is, James 4, 6, God gives more what? What does God give more of? Grace. Grace. The only hope for you and I to live this way is that God gives more grace. So closing prayer, I actually want to read a prayer I found this week. It's from a guy who's an author on the Gospel Coalition. And so would you just bow your heads and let me read this prayer on our behalf and think about, let this be our prayer to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, ouch, I've forgotten how many times in the scriptures you confront our default mode of grumbling. You tell us to do all things without grumbling because we can always find something and everything about which to grumble. We grumble about the weather. It's too hot or too cold, too wet or too dry, too windy or too still. We grumble about politics. Often more agitated by who's sitting in the White House than consoled by who's sitting on heaven's throne. We grumble about money. We've got too little and taxes take too much. We grumble about people who grumble. We grumble about worship. It's too loud or too quiet, too hymny or not hymny enough. We grumble about our ungrateful children, our disconnected spouses, our nosy parents, our loud neighbors, our irritating coworkers, and we grumble about complete strangers. We grumble about bad traffic, long lines, and slow waiters. We grumble about not-with-it churches, long-winded pastors, and we even grumble about you, wondering why in the world you have not answered our prayer by now to send Jesus back. Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on me. It is your will for us to give thanks in all circumstances. It is your grace towards us that makes this calling doable. And it is your delight in us that makes our grumbling so offensive, so unnecessary, and so inexcusable begin and will continue this day completely forgiven and robed in Christ's righteousness with the Spirit praying in us and Jesus praying for us as citizens of heaven and your servants in this world with a new name beloved a new heart and a secure inheritance called by you secure in you and kept for you hallelujah many times over father by your Holy Spirit ignite our joy humble our hearts and gentle our words And Father, that is our prayer as a people of Gateway this morning, where we all confess that, Lord, our words fall so far short, God, of what you want them to be. And God, would you remind us that when these hardships come, really in a lot of ways, they're a grace gift from you, because it removes the deceit in our eyes and our minds of thinking that we're okay and we're pretty good people. Because, Lord, when I look at my own life and the hardships that come and the type of words that have come out of my mouth, God, I've seen that I'm not who I always think I am. I suspect that's true for my brothers and sisters well. So would you just remind us that even the hardships and trials that some of these friends are walking through today are really a grace gift? Or because it's part of your way of sanctifying us, it's part of your way of maturing us, as doing what James has already told us in James 1, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So Father, I pray in your sovereign power and in your great, great love for us that you would keep using those hardships that we're walking through right now or that we will walk through to refine us, to show us what's really in our hearts so that we can be quick to repent of the, the things in our lives that are so displeasing to you, whether it's discontentment or not believing your promises or our pride. Lord, you see it all. So God, we thank you that you even take those less than ideal circumstances we're in to expose that so we can repent of those before you and find that sweet forgiveness and sweet reconciliation with you. And so we can find transformation happening of those areas that we have been blind to. Father, I do pray that we would not be beat down by texts like this. But Lord, as I read in that prayer just a minute ago, I pray that we'd be reminded that we stand forgiven. That if we are in Christ, all of our sins of grumbling and complaining, all the many sins of our speech day by day have already been put on Christ on the cross and he's already borne all of them for us. God, what a precious thought that is. That all of our sinful speech is already forgiven because of what Christ has done. And all of his perfect speech, that righteousness has been put on us. So, Father, when you see us, you don't see our discontent. You don't see our complaints. You don't see our grumbling. You see Christ who never did those things. What an incredible thought that we can approach you without fear because you see Christ's righteousness covering us. Remind us of that every day. Father, as we remember that every day, I would pray that we would remember that we are loved by you and that would not lead us to complacency in our walk with you, but lead us to want more and more to be practically transformed into who Christ is. So God, would you take this area of our speech that we all struggle with in different ways? God, would you grow us in it? Would you sanctify us in it? Would you be conforming us more and more into people who will speak the way you want to speak on the good days and on the hard days? And Lord, would we be people who are so quick to encourage one another and to point people to your coming. Lord, when the hardships hit, whether it's today or this week or months or years to come, God, I pray you will so anchor us in your word, that God, that we will look to heaven and think about eternity. As the old hymn says, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Lord, we can't make that happen, but you can. So would you be transforming us and sanctifying us and growing us this day in those ways. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning? And I may be weak, your spirit strong in me, my flesh may fail, my God, you never
God, you are the author and perfecter of our faith. God, it is you who begins the work in us and you who will complete it to the end, Father. God, we need you to give us that faith, God, to trust your word, God, trust your Bible, your revealed word to us, God. God, give us the faith to trust in your promises, God. As we just got to sing this week, God, we are weak, God flesh, we will fail every time, but you will never fail. You are unchanging, you are omnipotent, the omniscient, God all-knowing God. There is nothing that surprises you. There's nothing that can overtake you. And God, that strength that you have, we have access to, God, through you, through your Son, Jesus, God, through your Holy Spirit, God, that leads us to repentance, God. All your work, God, all of your design, Father, gives us the strength, God, and gives us the faith, God, to follow you, God, and to seek after you, God, and to even do anything good, God, is not even possible outside of you. Yes.